And you are listening to WMNF Tampa, Sarasota Clearwater Community Conscious Radio. Hi, I'm Mary Glenning. And I'm Arlene Englehart. And you are listening to From a Woman's Point of View. We're so glad to have you with us today. You have been wonderful listeners, and we love you all. Yes, and uh, before he gets out of here, I really want to give a special thanks uh, to Bill Grace. And, you know, WMNF is a family, and uh, Bill is a very important part uh, of, the, of the WMNF family, but particularly here at the Women's Show, <laughs> all the little snafus and things that go wrong. I say, Bill, Bill, come, <laughs> and he zips in here, and we straighten it out, and uh, it, it, it is family, and with that in mind, <clears throat> I have to thank all of you. Uh, I cannot say how profoundly moved and uh, really appreciative I am of all the comments, all the emails I got. You are eloquent, you're special, and I think the thing that I most appreciate about you is the genuine love, and it's family love. And so thanks so much for including me and Arlene and Bill and so many others as part of this family. And so, Bill Grace, thank you so much. You have been just an integral part of the women's show and uh, WMNF. I'm just a small wheel here in the cogs of not only the studio, the WMNF, but I think you all do the show very well and you could do it well without me. Well, we're Appreciate all... Appreciate being here. It's an honor. We're all small wheels. <laughs> there are no big wheels here, but uh, it's really appreciated, Bill, and thank you so much. Pleasure and we are not going to be... This is not our quote's last at bat. Okay, we are, we I are, hope not. We are going to be pinch hitters. <laughs> and uh, with Arnie Arneson, she's going to be our guest today. Uh, yes, Arnie, the, the woman with the dude, uh, who has a lot to say, but makes it a fun to hear some of it. Uh, hopefully, about every six weeks or two months, I'm going to be coming back, and we're going to catch up with Arnie, and so I'll be able to be in touch with all of you guys uh, about Arnie, and so uh, it just, as we say, you never say goodbye, Uh, see you down the road. There you go, that's so true. Okay. See you down the road. Okay, thanks so much, Bill. And so, Arlene, did you want to say anything? Well, I just echo what you said, and uh, thanks to everyone. We love this community, we love these listeners. And we love the history of MNF, the fact that Acorn, you know, hired some students just out of college or some people that were just out of college to go door to door in order to collect funds to start a radio station, a progressive radio station in this community. And they did it and did it very well. Um, WMNF broke away as an independent station and has been one of the leading community stations in the country. Um, I was proud that I served on the board of directors for, I believe it was 11 years, but I was president for three years, and especially take pride in the fact that we built this lovely facility while I was president, and I worked very, very hard on you and Vicky Santa happened. Vicky and, and I, Mark, the guy out in Lakeland, I can't have his last name right now. Yeah, Mark. His sister is such a great writer. <laughs> yeah. Mark O'Donnell, is that his name? Mark Donaldson. Donaldson. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you guys were, it, it was team, team effort. It was, it was a great time, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I left here and went out to Pacifica for three years, and during that time I became aware of 
more than 170 affiliate station community radio stations around the country and really learned how special WMNF is and how respected it is in the progressive radio community. And it's because of all of you. And you expect the best, and you should keep continue. You should always continue to expect the best and the honesty, the truth, because we so respect your ability to take the facts and use them. And so, let's get this station biz out of the way. Hey, this is Frankie Mopar with the Retro Jukebox Show. I'm here pushing the buttons every Wednesday morning, 4 to 6 a.m. Every week, we'll start out the show in the early 50s and progress through the 60s. Music is memories. So let's journey through our lives together. If you can't make it in person, the show's available 24-7 at WMNF.org. The Retro Jukebox, every Wednesday morning, 4 to 6 a.m. on your community conscious radio station, WMNF. Yeah, that's Frank, and if you're lucky enough, you'll meet his dog, Charlie. So, okay, I'm going to put on this music because, as I said, we're going to be talking with Arnie Arneson, and so let me put this music on, and we will come back with Arnie. was a giant. It was smaller, much by far, but not quite microscopic. His name was Davy, the short one, the big guy was Goliath. I don't read the Bible much, in fact, it's more like never. But I still think it's really cool that Davy kicked his butt. Sometimes Davy wins. Sometimes Davy Called him to the home office Said what a place, what a really great place Here we go, we struck gold All the people gathered round They yelled, you gotta go son Do not need your wall in world In fact, we can be no fun Take your big fat assets to an because indeed, Davey does win. Oh, and real quickly before we start to talk with Arnie Arneson, I want to uh, give a shout out. And uh, if you remember, I was going to talk to Lisa Perry last week. And Lisa Perry is just a fantastic, not just local, but state organizer. She's in the good fight and just about, her hand is in just about everything that's really important. And uh, I we couldn't reach Lisa and that's very unlike her. And so I'm glad to say, I'm sorry to say actually that she was in the hospital. She went an emergency, uh, had to have emergency operation, and she's doing much better, and we'll be back and about. She's probably already back and about, but Lisa Perry, you're important. You get better, and thanks so much for all you do. Okay, Arnie Arneson from the Attitude WNHN in um, New Hampshire, the state that doesn't apologize for anything. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me give you the breaking news. In a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court tossed out the latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act, finding Texas lacked standing to bring the case. 
<laughs> Obamacare stays. Wow. Oh, my God. I love it. Literally, it just happened minutes ago, so I just want to make sure you know. And once again, Texas got kicked in there, you know what. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> because I can't stand their attorney general. Oh, my God. Ken Paxton, the indicted attorney general. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that literally just came, just came out. Well, you know, maybe there's some hope for that Supreme Court. You know, they always say that when they get on there, they get they, they realize that they're representing far more than themselves. And sometimes just the dignity of the place creeps down. Yeah, but exactly. I, I can only hope. And besides, Sotomayor is there. <laughs> and, you know, I will read every decision that woman writes. I think she I think she is the great protector of us right now. Don't you think? Well, actually, I think that we almost have an obligation to read out loud her dissenting opinions. I think we have to read them and read them and read them on the air and, you know, reprint them in the newspaper. People need to hear Sotomayor. She will be, I'm sure, in the minority, given the balance on the court, but her words are prescient. She is going to tell us what the future is going to be like. She is going to tell us about the failing. She is so, she's, she's wonderful and biting and smart and oh my god so i just i actually do think that there almost should be a show and all you do is read sotomayor <laughs> well that's a plan because kagan elena kagan to me is uh, she, she's far more the academic uh, intellectual yes. I, I think they tend to follow the letter of the law and uh perhaps in a i wouldn't say rigid but uh, I'd, I'd rather have it much more like Sotomayor's. But anyway, okay, Arnie Arneson, uh, what do you think? Is there, is there anything more important to every citizen in this country than the right to vote? Oh, God, no. So, uh, so we, we just passed with uh, the United States Senate that had a unanimous uh, vote, and then I guess only 14 Republicans voted against Juneteenth. And let me just say something. You cannot pass a federal holiday called Juneteenth without passing a federal holiday for Election Day. You can't. They're wedded. Because the whole point of what's happening around the country and the reason why we can't get Republicans to vote for for the People Act is because in one breath they say, oh, look, we're going to give you a holiday, Juneteenth. And at the same breath, they're undermining the ability to exercise the franchise in Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country, everywhere. And without the For the People Act, we will ultimately see not only will 2022 go down, but democracy will go down. So in a lot of ways, I, I'm, I'm happy about Juneteenth. Don't get me wrong, but you can't you know, recognize what happened on Juneteenth and then undermine the ability of minorities in this country to exercise the franchise because that's exactly what voter suppression is about. It looks at minorities, it looks at young people, it looks at poverty and says we're going to make it really hard, if not impossible, for you to exercise the franchise because we want to control what is not going to be a future democracy but what is going to be an autocracy. Yeah, and, you know, the old saying is that, you know, <laughs> that winners write history. And my attitude is, uh, don't you mean that winners rewrite history? <laughs> so, 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 so it gives the result that they want uh, because, you know, there's such an effort to deny what happened here in this country, who founded this country. Right. I mean, you know, why did the second and third sons that wouldn't inherit the estates in Europe uh, decide to come over here and just take this empty land, which was anything but... But empty, uh, you know, and but it's, it's rigging the system. They're not winners; they're cheaters. Totally. Let me just repeat this: they are not winners; they are cheaters. Let me read you something. This is a retweet I did just this morning. 
There's a whole lot of folks thinking the system worked fine and Trump was just an aberration. Trump was the tip of a spear representing the 30% of the country that has 50% of the voting power. And we are wimaring ourselves into giving the 30% of the country 100% of the power. Think about this. 30% control, 50% of the voting power. Then when you do the gerrymandering, then when you do the voter suppression, that 30% will then control 100% of the power because they are rigging the system. The only way they can win is to cheat. Yeah, and, and change the rules as they go. Uh, but, yes. you know, Arnie has been very effective. I think that's what's so troubling, uh, that even though, you know, we, we look at that, uh, that it's lasted for a very long time, and even though we might look and say, well, there's no future in that, you'd say, well, you have to understand that if you write the future, if you write the rules, you they think that they will determine the future. And well, but the, the, rules, the rules were rotted from the very beginning. When you look at when we formed the country and we created something called the United States Senate, that by definition was a failure. The United States Senate is not democratic. Let's remember everyone. You have a state the size of Texas. It has two U.S. Senators. You have a state the size of Vermont, the size of a suburb. It has two U.S. Senators. How is that fair? How is that fair? And then put on top of that the Electoral College, then put on top of that the fact that the Supreme Court has basically embraced the idea that it's legal to do partisan gerrymandering. When you look at all these pieces added together, you understand how rigged the system is, and it was rigged from the very beginning. Well, Arnie, and again, we're talking to Arnie Arneson, and you can tell the woman's got an opinion and a very intelligent opinion. Uh, that, you know, to me, this is the reason there is a, such a fight on what is being taught in schools, what history is being taught allowed for young minds to play with and to understand, because if they don't really understand democratic principles, uh, it takes a while to realize that, whoa, just because this is the way things are, they really shouldn't be like this. Well, I mean, we, we, we cherry-pick everything. We cherry-pick our health care. We cherry-pick our history. We, you know, we, we even cherry-pick the stories we tell our children. And I think that that's unfortunate. And I think what you need to start thinking about is what is in the best interest, not only of our country, but of our families, of our businesses, and of our children. And I've always sort of told my kids that, you know, this is the mistakes your mother made. And I want you to learn not only from my mistakes, but from your mistakes. I think I've told you before that I, I really do think that all politicians should be required to file two statements a personal financial statement, and a personal failure statement. Can you imagine that? If we could get them to recognize their failure, then we wouldn't be able to sort of look at, you know, critical race theory and, and get nervous about that. And we wouldn't be able to go back into our history books and think that we would, should whitewash our history books and never admit the mistakes that we've made. Because in the end, if you ignore those mistakes, you repeat those mistakes. What do they say about history? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And it especially rhymes with the failures we've made. And I think that's really why, if you really care about what happens in the future, you have to acknowledge the mistakes of the past. 
And, you know, thinking of, particularly with Juneteenth and thinking of MLK and that marvelous statement, the prophet of our times, don't you really feel? I feel the man was just extraordinary, the things he was saying and was so aware of and was forcing us to pay attention to Vietnamese as human beings and individuals and what were we doing there. Uh, But he feels the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Do you think that? Um. I don't know anymore. And the reason I don't know anymore is because I'm not even quite sure he could understand and comprehend the level of inequality that we see in this country today. And I mean, when you look at the power uh, of the top 0.01%, it's not just that we're creating trillionaires, Jeff Bezos, and we've seen massive billionaires, but they don't they don't only work the system, they're owning the system. And when they own it, they're acting in their self-interest. And then you begin to wonder, what does that mean for the rest of us? And I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how it bends when right now it's so owned and rigid. I think it breaks. I'm not sure it bends anymore. And that's what terrifies me. And I literally, I mean, I wake up morning, noon, and night, and I keep thinking about, you know, what's happening with Manchin, and I'm thinking about the filibuster. And again, we know the hist- if you know the history of the filibuster, the history of the filibuster was basically to keep, you know, anti-black, um, anti... Um, I mean, it was just, it was, it was about injustice. It was about maintaining injustice. That's what it was created for. It was never to do a good thing. It was always to make sure that good things never happened, you know. And now you're looking at what's going on right now. It is so undemocratic, the filibuster. Why should 40% control the lives of the rest of us? And yet that's the power that we've given. And now we're dealing with a party that isn't a party anymore. It's a cult. It doesn't believe in democracy. It doesn't believe in the franchise. It doesn't believe even in what you see with your own eyes. What are we seeing Tucker Carlson doing on Fox the other night? He's actually now suggesting that the FBI was behind the January 6th insurrection. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. What is happening? You know, I mean, there's what do you trust if you can't what? trust your eyes and your ears and the things that you touch and feel? Well, they were just tourists. I mean, they were just tourists. Tourists on a very special, you know, uh, uh, observation. But back just a minute, uh, you know, the originalists, you know, going into the sacredness of the Constitution, our founding fathers were very aware of the dangers uh, of a minority controlling the majority. They pointed yes. that out from the get-go, yes. that it had to be just a simple majority or a lethal minority would control the show. And uh, the original don't seem to uh, want to follow the, the, the advice of our founding fathers. They never have. Again, what I think is so fascinating about my Republican counterparts is how easily they cherry-pick and use things to their advantage when it fits their agenda. Okay? They, they don't, it's never been about originalists. It's about maintaining their power. As long as you understand what's happening through the lens of maintaining your power, then you will understand what they do. They can, I mean, they're, they're hypocrites. You know, they can point to, so I had an interesting um, person on the air. He was the editor, Michael Tomaski. He's the editor of New Republic. Mm-hmm. And he was on the air with me yesterday, and he said something absolutely fascinating. 
So, you know, one of the things we keep hearing from Joe Manchin and the Republicans is the support for the filibuster, because the process is so important. The process is so important. But these are the same people who've always told me that process isn't important, but the outcome is important. Nobody cares about the process, they would tell me. All they care about is the outcome. Don't worry about the voting issues. Don't worry about this. People care about outcomes. Well, guess what? If that's the case, then suddenly you're embracing process, i.e. the filibuster, to do what? To prevent the outcome, to prevent the infrastructure bill, to prevent the voting rights bill, to prevent all of a sudden you're like, you know, sheltering yourself in this concept of process that you have always told me nobody cared about. And the reason I even say this is I was on the National Board of Common Cause back in the early 1990s, and people used to make fun of me. They would say, Arnie, nobody cares about this. They just care about, you know, their check. They care about their job. They care about their infrastructure. They don't care about process. And I felt like I was being so marginalized. Now, look, the same people that would sort of scold me about process are now hiding behind process. Well, you mentioned Manchin, and uh, I thought it was interesting. I was hearing the Reverend Barber because he has an interesting solution that he thinks we need to do. That every day we need to call our senators and tell, and you know, say how important voting and all of this is. And he just thinks that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, but he was he was in West Virginia, and he was talking to the citizens of West Virginia, and they really don't think Manchin is all that hot because a lot of the things that Biden and some of the Democrats are suggesting, you know, for infrastructure. Uh, the minimum wage, uh, you know, help to moms, you know, raising the kids, et cetera. Uh, they think that's a pretty good idea, and they're sick to death of Manchin uh, being, so to speak, their godfather. So what I think needs to happen for Senator Manchin is I think the Democratic Party needs to go into places, not just in places like West Virginia, even in places that are controlled by Republicans, like Texas, like others, like, like Florida. And I think what you do is you pull the infrastructure bill out and you point out all the things that would happen in their state. Here's the bridge we would fix. Here's the child care we would fix. Here's the manufacturing we're going to bring in. Here's the this. If they support, the, don't support this uh, filibuster, you get those things. If they support the filibuster, you don't get those things. Which one would you choose? All right? And you literally show them a picture of the bridge. You show them the picture of the manufacturing. You show them the town. You show them the billions that would happen. And they're suddenly wrapping themselves up in this filibuster of 60 votes. And you say, which would you prefer, the 60 votes or the bridge? And you have to be that specific. You have to bring it home. You have to bring it to the county, to the town, to the state, and let them see it. Democrats can't just hope that people will read the New York Times or the Washington Post or some editorial. What they need to do is be in people's faces and let them feel and touch and see what people like Manchin are basically willing to sacrifice. What? On the altar of bipartisanship? There is no bipartisanship. There's only a future. And that really is what we are building is a future. And the bipartisanship that they're talking about, it undermines their future. And, Ernie, can you look at Manchin and not look at coal? Uh, but uh, and the Koch brothers, because he's surely not listening to the coal miners in West Virginia. But it seems to me that he's serving the Koch brothers and their interest in the coal and the coal slags quite a bit. Well, he may be, but if but but the, but coal knows it's over. The 
they know it's over. And what you say to coal miners, as opposed to the Koch brothers, is you say, I understand the sacrifice that you're going to be asked to make because we have to deal with climate change and we have to deal with alternative energy. Here is our promise to you. We don't abandon you. We don't abandon your health care. We don't abandon the idea of jobs. We don't abandon the idea that you need to bridge to the future. We are here to make sure that you stay whole as the country changes. We can't ask you to sacrifice everything for the rest of us because you have families and you have a life. That's really what Joe Biden talks about all the time. He doesn't just talk about the Green New Deal. He talks about the new jobs. And he looks at the coal miners in West Virginia and he says, those jobs have your name on it, and we will help you get there. That is so important. Do they want to go in a mine? No. Do they want to have a job? Yes. Do they want a good-paying job, which is what some of those coal jobs used to pay? Yes. Well, then guess what? It's a price that we can afford, and it's a life that they need. Yeah, I mean, the Green New Deal, uh, there are just jobs, and they'll be sustainable jobs, and those jobs will increase. In other words, you know, not only are we dealing, you know, with trying, you know, to make sustainable resources and get rid of, eliminate fossil fuels, but I think far more importantly, we're going to be looking into how do we store energy? You know, I mean, in other words, the kind of problems that Tesla and some others are working on right now, and that will be marvelous creativity, imagination that will, I think, bring out some of the best in America's uh, scientific minds, but also just a very practical sense. How do we store energy? How do we move it across the country? You know what, you know what the best way to store energy to start with? is that we have, to, we have to look at every home and every business, and we have to start with conservation. Now, here's the beauty of conservation. The beauty of conservation is that's millions of jobs. That means you have to retrofit buildings. You have to insulate buildings. You have to change the windows. You have to fix the foundations. And if you do that right there, you're actually preserving so much in the way of energy. Because right now, in so many places, especially poor communities around the country, they're not heating their homes. They're heating the outdoors. They're not able to live on their incomes. Why? Because they're spending so much on their energy bills to basically see the heat not stay in their homes or the AC not stay in their homes. The one thing we can do as we talk about alternatives is we actually are looking at what we need to do. And it's not just the infrastructure that we're talking about. It's the actual structures people live in. And if we can address that, we create jobs and we expand people's income. My energy bill could be without the solar panels on my roof. My electric bill could probably be around five to six hundred dollars a month. My electric bill is a hundred and twenty. Why? Because I have eighteen solar panels on my roof. What does that tell you? Not only is that good for the environment, it's good for my wallet. And, Arnie, we need to look at leaves of trees because how does the sweet little leaf uh, take the energy from the sun and transfer it? I mean, there is the miracle, and we are suffering still the ravages of COVID, and we're very, very worried. You know, will we need booster shots, et cetera? Is there a new more virulent strain, et cetera? And this was a much easier virus than we could have been exposed to. We could have been exposed to something more like Ebola or, God forbid, something worse because the bacteria and the viruses the rickettsia they will always be way ahead of us and so we've been given an opportunity to see that nature we need to go to nature we need to study the leaf 
Yeah, well, you know, it, it's interesting. So I live in an old 1890 house, and in the basement of my house, they have something called, like, French drains, okay? And what A are French they, drain? They, uh, yeah, what, so let, what it is is that in the basement, in the floor, there are these ruts on the floor, and they look like little canals. All right, uh-huh. And the reason why they have these little canals that start at the basement of the floor and go then out at the basement is they knew that water would come into my basement. So what they realized is they could either try to stop the water from coming in by somehow, I don't know what, you know, making it even a thicker basement floor, I mean, basement foundation, or they could assume that the water would come in, and what they would do then is that the water would be directed out because they knew ultimately the water would win. It would blow up my basement because it always can figure a way through. And instead of trying to fight the rain and fight the flood, they would allow the water to basically come in and go out. That's what we have to do with nature. Nature is is not something you always fight. It's something that you need to learn to work with. The problem with climate change is that we have bastardized nature. We have actually made it even more harmful. So now the question is, what can we do to basically deal with that problem we've created and also make sure that that problem doesn't get worse? You know, and I'm, and I'm looking at what's happening right now with climate change. There are stories going on right now in, in California. They're already devastated by what's happening with the heat and the fires. And it is just the beginning of the summer. It's the beginning of the summer. We haven't even hit peak. And already the challenges are overwhelming. What do we do? And we just can't sit on the sidelines and watch. We have to figure out how to be creative. Yeah, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, out west, uh, the Institute for Biosymmetry. And it is fascinating. I mean, some of the work they do there, and Europeans, I notice, take much more advantage of this than we do. Uh, but just some of the, the, the things that they point out. Uh, when, when I interviewed her in the show, I remember her saying, she said, you know, Mary, she said, you just take any cell in your body or any cell in any organism alive. And she said, everything is alive. And she said, it is the most complicated computer, most sophisticated yeah. computer, yeah. that we, we couldn't even imagine it. And, you know, that kind of blew my mind when I really thought about that. And, I mean, this this is what we're talking about, that nature, you know, is alive in ways that we, we can't even begin to fathom. And if, yeah. and if we become so enamored to our intellect and our brains and minds that we fail to be open to what really is happening in life uh, and in the DNA, then we've lost the game totally. Well, again, we're going back to what, what have we taught our children? What do they know about what you just talked about? I mean, like, again, it's kind of like not knowing our history, not knowing the science, not, I mean, this is why there's this anti-intellectualism, anti-science. Oh, my God, kids are like sponges. They want to know. They want to learn. Why do you want to prevent them from knowing? Why do you want to stop the curiosity? I mean, that's the thing that really sort of shocks me. I think in so many ways, they would be so excited by by the potential and by the challenge and by the opportunity. But somehow we want to cement them in. And that's not good for them, and it's not good for our world. And I think that's where, again... You know, in an interesting way, the, the pandemic is a horrific event, but it's also an opportunity to learn. You know, and we have to sort of take a look at this and figure out what is it that we can learn from this, because the pandemic is just the first step.
step, unfortunately, in the kind of challenges that we're going to face because climate change is going to expedite every kind of frightening thing that we could possibly imagine. Now the question is, how do we deal with it together as opposed to try to destroy each other? You know, and that's why the timing of Donald Trump and the timing of the Republican Party and the timing of voter suppression and the timing of inequality couldn't be worse. Couldn't well, be worse. And they're reflective, frankly, Arnie, of death. They, they really are. I mean, in other words, you know, as opposed to the conch shell and the spiral, you know, just keeps going up, keeps growing, will always keep growing, uh, that actually uh, they are turning internal and they're trying to make a very rigid, perfect circle. And uh, I'm sorry, but that is death. And it so, is. you know, that you can choose death, I guess, uh, but uh, that's pretty fatalistic. Or you can stop being so judgmental and stop, you know, being under the impression that we have to be able to understand everything and we can understand everything and recognize that, hey, be open. You're going to be surprised and you're going to be surprised all the time, but deal with it because you can. It doesn't mean you'll come up with a perfect answer. It doesn't even mean you'll come up with anything to do with that actually what's happening but you open a door and you open those doors and you never know where it's going to lead you and it's a heck of a lot of fun it's life so we're i mean we're always afraid of change but life is change we're always concerned about what is different but what is different is, is both about an opportunity and a way to reflect so let me share something with you so my you know about my granddaughter born in shanghai oh i sure so do so my my um my daughter said, Mom, there's this new book. It just came out in January. You have to buy it. And I want you to buy it so that when you get to meet your, your granddaughter, you read it to her. The title of the book is Eyes That Kiss in the Corners. All right? And it's written by a, uh, a principal, but it was written by a young Asian woman who didn't see any books written for her or for her children, and she suddenly realized that she needed to write something that could be her, something her kids could read. So I just posted this on my Facebook page. I said, the book has arrived. The Concord Library already has a copy, but I'm giving one to the little Orford Public Library, Orford, New Hampshire, population 1,200, where my two daughters were raised. We need to see ourselves, and now my new granddaughter, Gong Mei Jin will see eyes like hers and family like hers. And that's, that's the beauty of this new children's book, is that it's exposing children, Asian children, to stories where they can see themselves, but it's also exposing the rest of us to lives like theirs. And I think that's where there's so much opportunity and so much to learn from each other that it's, I mean, I understand the fear but I just can't even imagine the loss if we let fear dictate our future. And Arnie, I, I missed the name of the book at the beginning. Could you the give it again? The name of the book, ready? Yes. It's Eyes That Kiss in the Corners. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, my God, it's beautiful. Eyes That Kiss Eyes in the Corners. Eyes That corner. Kiss in the Corners. It is incredible. And, and so, you know, so I've got this book, and I'm, I mean, it just came out, everyone. Buy it for your grandchild. Donate it to your library if they don't have it. It's, but these are the kinds of things we need to feel and see and touch. And, and I'm going to just say one other thing. I, I started watching, just the beginning of the week, um, the series called Pose. And I'm sure you've heard about it. But it's a, it's a, a TV series. It's 
just it's just the finale just happened this week or in the beginning of June. And it's a story about LGBTQ and transgender African American and Latinos in New York City in the nineteen eighties during the height of the AIDS explosion. Um I started watching it two nights ago. I didn't go to bed last night till midnight. I wept in my bed. I wept alone in my bed as I'm watching it. And again, it's exposing me to a community and to a challenge and to what life must have been like and how frightening it was to live in a community where AIDS was rampant. And I see it, and I will probably binge watch it to the very end, and I recommend that you watch it because once again, we need to be exposed to things we don't know or people we've never met or lives we've never experienced because once we see it and once we understand our common humanity and once we understand the challenges, I don't know how prejudice doesn't begin to disappear, how fear doesn't begin to dissolve. And honest to God, I between the book and between watching this series called Pose, I... I feel like I want every evangelical church to watch it together as a community. So instead of being afraid of transgender, they watch this. Instead of being afraid of gays, they watch this. I mean, suddenly you see how we're all so human, and we all need to love, and we all need to be loved. And it's almost like that's really what I want to do. I want to bring it in to places like Texas that, you know, want to get put things in like divisive concepts and say, really, let's watch this together. And you tell me why you think this is a divisive concept. What about love is divisive? Yeah, and and the terrible opprobrium at that time, Reagan oh in office, and kind of the attitude that, you know, this is God's punishment. Uh, you know, what did they expect? And then, you know, finally the rebellion, you know, by, by the divas, you know, that they finally stood up and said enough is enough. Uh, and, you know, like right now, this is Pride Month, uh, and I, I, we're having a whole month of it here in, in yeah. Florida in our area. And people, if you haven't gone over to Pickley St. Pete and seen those murals, I expect to spend most of the day looking at those murals. And I thought it was so cute that one of the big designers of it, he says, you know, we're getting so many letters now. You know, it's, it's LGBTQ. And he said, we're just going to have the whole alphabet. And I thought that was so funny. And I thought, yes, it is inclusive. It's far more than a rainbow flag. You know, it's far more than a double rainbow. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it, it is that opprobrium and, you know, taking God or taking your beliefs and using it to your vindictiveness, uh, you know, it was, it was a terrible, brutal time. Well, I'm every, so every day on my radio show, I'm either sharing a story or I'm doing a quote or I'm editing a poem. So today's poem for Pride Month is by Andrea Gibson, and it's very short. My straight friends tease me because all my best friends are my ex-loves. But a wise heart told me it's the most tender part of queerness, how we've all lost so much family. When we find people we call family, we'll do almost anything to not let go. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I mean, I don't care who you are. It's gorgeous. That, that is, and so, again, I mean, that's where I, that's where I revel 
in being able to share things and to confront people with their fear and to let them be open to understanding what's going on. That's the that's the exciting thing. And and that's where I, I look at what's happening in the US Senate and I'm so distraught because we have people who don't want to open up. They don't want to hear. They want to deny. I mean, you know, what they're doing with the insurrection is just incredible. How can you, how can your life be on the line? And then, you know, weeks later, you're denying it even happened. I mean, where, where is your soul? You know, where is your spine? And why did you enter public life? Really, what is the purpose of being a public servant if you don't know how to serve? And, you know, Arnie, I'm going to go back to your little granddaughter. And I'm thinking, you know, when I last talked to you, she was wrapping her little fingers around your daughter. And, right. and to me, you know, that kind of love that no matter, no matter what country you're in, any parent would understand that. And, and just, and, you know, that, that's almost like the ceiling in Rome, you know, where, yep. where Michelangelo touches the hand of finger of God. Uh, but, I'm thinking right now, and it's really, really worrying me because I am seeing just a buildup to such adversity with China that there is just this really fierce, I think, almost warlike mentality that China is the enemy, it's going to be the economic leader of the world, and we have got to do something now. And is this worrying you as much as it is me? Oh, my God. <laughs> Worry isn't even the word for it, okay? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think we have to sort of step back and realize that China isn't the enemy, but it is an economic powerhouse, all right? There's no question. And in, in an ironic way, it was the U.S., in part, that made it an economic wear, mm -hmm. a powerhouse because we moved so many of our uh, manufacturing sure. facilities. So we moved. I mean, let's understand who owns this result. We, in part, own this result because we were driving jobs out because they could be done cheaper over there. They could be done without regulation over there. Because think about it, this is what we live. We live in the idea that somehow cheap is better. Well, it's not better for anyone. And, and I think one of the things that China also did that we didn't do is that China understood the investment of soft power. So as we were selling arms and ammunition to the world, okay, what were they doing? They were building roads and bridges, and they were doing, I mean, yeah, they want something back for this. Don't get me wrong here. But they understood the investment of soft power as we somehow thought that military power was the answer to everything. Well, you know what? We are wrong. And yes, they are economic competition. That's fine. But the word should end at competition. They are not an enemy. They are a, comp they are a competitor. And we can deal with them that way. But that's not, how we, that's not how we look at the world. We look at the world as winners and losers. But in the end, we live on one planet. You know, we have to figure out how to do this together. They're going to contribute to climate change. They're going to die. They're going to have to deal with the pandemic. They're going to die. They need to figure out what to do with vaccines. I mean, we have so much that we can deal with together. But right now we're looking at them through the jaundiced eye of somehow they are an enemy. I don't want to give them that ground. I want to look at them and kill them with kindness and opportunity and let them do what they want to do. But right now, I fear for my daughter, and I fear for my daughter when she comes home. I don't just fear for her in China. 
You know, because right now there's a tremendous amount of anti-American sentiment, and it's growing. And that means that she is at risk. Mm -hmm. But what happens when she comes home? Because when she comes home, she comes home with her Chinese husband and her daughter with eyes that kiss in the corners. And they look different. Yeah, and will they be able to get back in? I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is very serious. And a minor sidebar. I'm also thinking, uh, you know, that uh, uh, that that all those products that China, you know, makes for us to send back here. Uh, we don't want to forget that uh, who owns most of the shipping industry. You know, that uh, yeah. that brings that stuff across. Uh, it's Elaine Chow. You know, Mitch yeah. McConnell's a wife and. Elaine Chow's uh, family owns most of that, and they make a small bundle of bringing a lot of those products here. And so uh, it seems to come around to certain people of power. Well, but, 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 but again, we don't know the history. No. We don't understand it. So it's easy to blame China without recognizing what part of the ownership of this conversation are we. I mean, that's really what this is about. I was, someone just sent me something that I was talking to you, and I thought this was kind of interesting because the timing of it is, um, is appropriate given what we're seeing happening in Congress. And they said, these are JFK's last words written for the end of a speech he planned to give in Austin, Texas, mm. at a banquet on the evening of November 22nd, 1963. And here's what JFK was going to say. Neither the fanatics nor the faint-hearted are needed, and our duty as a party is not to our party alone, but to the nation, and indeed to all mankind. Our duty is not merely the preservation of political power, but the preservation of peace and freedom. So let us not be petty when our cause is so great. Let us not quarrel amongst ourselves when our nation's future is at stake. And we won't even get into the assassination of JFK. Oh. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing. So I was going to ask you a question. Sure. Do you remember your first day on the radio? Ah, uh, well, I actually started giving health tips. Okay. Uh, yes, I, pre well, maybe not the very first, but as I say, I was in the old building and yep. I gave health tips. And then the one who was doing the show, Dorothy Abbott, uh, left to, uh, she got involved in building hab homes for habitats for humanity. Yep, yep. And so then we rotated and then that didn't work out too well. And so I'm not sure exactly, but then Arlene and I, uh, started to do the show. And so it's, but it, you know what? My story is this, almost the same. Okay. I was, so I was thinking about this because I was going back to my first radio show because I wasn't trained in radio. This wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I was going to, you know, I was, I was trained to be a lawyer. I was like in the legislature. I was doing low-income poverty work. And um, here's how I got in. Somewhat similar to you. I was in the New Hampshire legislature, and there was a little tiny radio station in the middle of a cornfield in White River Junction, Vermont. <laughs> and there was a Saturday show, and the guy who did the Saturday show, this was a radio station before public radio was up in the sort of my part of the, of the country. So it was Dartmouth College was the big employer up there. And so the radio audience was an audience that had the White Mountain Militia, and Dartmouth College professors. That was the audience. I mean, you can't even make it up. So he would have me on the air a, a lot to sort of talk about what was happening in the New Hampshire legislature and to talk about politics. And then one day 
he got sick. And the owner of the station called me up and said, would you fill in for Al? And I went, excuse me? Would you for, fill in for Al? And I'm going, I don't do radio. And he said, actually, Arnie, you do. We've been listening to you as Al would interview for the last two years, and I think you actually do radio. And so because he got sick, they put me in the chair with a microphone in front of me, and it was old equipment from the 1950s with all these bells and whistles, okay? You just can't imagine. So I didn't have an engineer. I had to do it all myself. And no one told me that my radio, my microphone was hot, Mary. And I, all of a sudden, these are my first words on the radio. Oh, my God. It looks like, I don't think I can say this on the radio because no. I know I've got blitz. It looks like a GD cockpit. <laughs> That's what I said. Those are my first words on the radio. And you should see the owner of the station come running in going, Your mic's hot. Your mic's hot. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's so funny because you started doing something else. Uh-huh. And yeah. then as they left, you evolved into a show. I started, you know, being a guest. And it evolved into a show. And then it became a love affair. Yeah, yeah. I, I really broke up at your sense of a cockpit. I totally, totally, <laughs> totally get that. I know you would. I know you would. I remember looking at her going, you can't leave me here. You can't leave me here. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. In fact, I remember, I mean, so many memories I have, it's unbelievable. But I remember one that, you know, we would have various people come in because we did a two-hour show on Saturday. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this Liz Fairman would come in with the news or someone else because it rotated. Right. And so Liz was sitting in the stool across the way, and I leaned down to get some stuff that I was going to do an announcement afterwards, and I look up, and Liz has disappeared. And I said, oh. Where is Liz? She, I see this hand coming out. She says, just carry on. She said, just read their report. And she had broken her ankle. Oh, <laughs> and, no. and so we had these kids in for the science before the Liz. And so the fathers came in and were carrying Liz out to take her to the emergency room. <laughs> and, you know, it sounds awful, but I, I still remember looking over and she wasn't there. And this hand comes up and I thought, oh, my God, what is happening now? <laughs> And it wasn't always like that. But, you know, with community radio, and you're right, we uh, don't have producers, we don't have engineers, no, we are no. the whole show. You We're the whole show, Mr. <laughs> well, you know, so, so, one day, so one day I'm having this fight on the radio about guns. I mean, oh. you know, no surprise. You oh, know, I yeah. The White Mountain Militia. Uh-huh. So I, the show is over, it's three hours, and I'm in the bathroom. Okay, I'm in the bathroom. And all of a sudden I hear a knock on the door. And it's the station manager. And he goes, don't come out. I'm like, what? He said, don't come out. I'm in this tiny little bathroom. I'm like, what do you mean, don't come out? He said, um, Plainfield is here with his guns. So what had happened was one of the listeners who had been called in and were having this interesting conversation about guns had driven from his home to the radio station. And he said, I don't think you should come out, Arnie. And I've been talking to Plainfield for probably about maybe a year and a half. And I said, no, it'll be okay. So I walk out of the bathroom, and there's Plainfield waiting in the entryway. And why had he driven to the station? I had never seen the guns he had been describing, and I admitted that on the air. He brought them over so I could see them. Mm. 
not to hurt me, mm. but in a lot of ways, it was kind of like he was showing off his children. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. But again, that was, that was the interesting thing about radio. You could talk to people. You would get to sort of know them, although you didn't know them. And so here I was, realizing it would be okay. I had talked enough with Plainfield to understand he didn't hate me. You know, we disagreed on this. And he wanted me to understand his life. And I truly didn't. Didn't mean I agreed with it, but he drove to the station. I mean, these are stories. You know, you want to make them into miniseries. You know, Arnie, uh, a very similar thing, really. Uh, when this is very early back in the old building. And, uh, you know, that I had just had a guest, terrific guest. And she was doing a one act, you know, stand up. But she also was a counselor for PTSD in New York City. And this guy comes in, and uh, you know, and he's carrying a gun, and he's he's a a laid-off postal employee, and he was angry. He was so angry, and he said, "You people are going to pay for what's happened to me," and we had nothing to do with it. Well, luckily, she was right behind me. And so she very gently started to talk to him and say, you know, you were in the service. What happened? And it was so amazing. He ended up absolutely in tears and said, I can't control anymore what's happening. And so she was going to follow up and try and get him help. And that happened. I mean, this is what happens in radio. You know, I mean, it's it's real. It's very real. and, And what you just also told us, is the importance of mental health and the importance of counseling and the importance of giving people access to this. They need to be able to do it. We've separated mental health from the rest of health. We can't do that anymore, especially think about the mental health issues that we're going to be facing as a result of this pandemic. Think about that, Mm -hmm. you know, between the social media and the anger and the fear and the pandemic and the class, we need to deal with people's minds now more than ever. They need a safe place to talk. They need a place to be able to understand that they're not alone in their sense of being distraught. And, and Arnie, we have almost run out of time. And I know Arlene wants to say where they can catch your shows. Go ahead, Arlene. Well, I want to say that, but I wanted to also um, let you know what one listener said oh, okay. about this discussion this morning. Your discussion reminds me of Plato and his... Uh, dexahedron. He discovered that the true nature of nature is irrational, and for that reason, the truth must be b- must be hidden from the master. Isn't the real problem patriarchal oppression? Uh, I thought that was uh, a, a good description of this morning's discussion. And yes, Arnie, tell the listeners where they can catch your show. Um, Thank you. Uh, so I. I- I stream my show every day uh, at noon and then again at 7 at WNHNFM.org, WNHNFM.org. We also have a podcast of every single darn show we've ever done, and you can find the podcast either at that site or if you go to Facebook and you happen to do Facebook, The Attitude with Arnie Arneson has a Facebook page. Go to that Facebook page. I tell you what. It's going to be on the show every single day, and then it sends it gives you a link so you can find where the podcasts are. And we have we have remarkable people, 
I mean, remarkable people. Yesterday we talked about Father's Day with the head of the classics department at Brandeis University. It was amazing. Well, Arnie Arneson, you are amazing. And we'll see you down the road in about six weeks to two months, okay? It's a date. Okay. Thanks Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Arnie. How could it go?